What is up? I am Evan Lovett, and welcome to my new podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett. This is an Odyssey original brought to you by my company, In a Minute Media, coming to you live from my studio in the heart of my favorite city in the world, Los Angeles, California. Let's get into it. Yo, what is up? This is episode number 16 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. Arguably the most fun episode to date. I'm excited about this. I'm coming to you from the I Am Studios in the heart of Los Angeles. This one's going to be dope. Here's a rundown. We start with this. Los Angeles, it's the most diverse city in the world. And I mean that in the literal sense. The most diverse city on the planet. And I'm going to get into some facts about the diversity of this city that will blow your mind, including how Los Angeles became the most diverse city in the world. You are not going to want to miss this. If you're going to do one thing in L.A. this week, do this. You're going to a cemetery, but not for a gravesite or anything somber. It's for a work of art, a painting that is almost unfathomable. It's as wide as a 19-story building is tall. And it has its own amphitheater built specifically to showcase this one painting. And the story of how it got there is even more mind-blowing than the painting itself. Stay tuned. This is awesome. All right, y'all. Let's get into it. Chinatown. Byzantine Latino Quarter. Little Saigon. Historic Filipino Town, Little Armenia, Cambodia Town, Little Ethiopia, Little Bangladesh, Little Moscow, Croatian Place, Little Tokyo, Koreatown, Tarangelis, Thai Town. These are just some of the officially designated community hubs here in Los Angeles. Notice I didn't even mention Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Eritreans. Australians, Native Americans, or even Mexican, each of which comes from a country where LA has more of its people than anywhere else in the world outside of that native country. I mean, look, this is the textbook definition of diversity. I I got an anecdote. My mom's best friend, Eva, who since my mom passed away is now our family friend. She's from Uganda. Uganda. So I had to look that up, right? What's the story with Ugandans in the United States? Guess what? There's only 20,000 and more than half. You guessed it. Right here in Los Angeles. Come on. That's incredible. I got to say, the diversity of the city resonated with me ever since I can remember. And and it's funny because in retrospect, and I'm coming from LA, middle of San Fernando Valley, I never noticed quote unquote diversity. The drum was never beat. Nobody was ever hitting that narrative back then. But I'm looking back to my seventh grade class at Holmes Junior High. It was my first class. And like, I came from this tiny school in Northridge called Pinecrest. And like, now I'm at at Holmes Junior High. I didn't really know anybody. Only a couple of people went to that school from my elementary school, which by the way, doesn't even exist anymore at the elementary school. Holmes still does. But I remember Odessa, from Egypt, Egyptian. Kobe from Kenya. C-O-B-I, by the way, not like Kobe Bryant. Kiana from Haiti. Justin from the Philippines. Matthew was Jewish. Raluca from Romania. What? I mean, look, in Los Angeles, no matter your socioeconomic class, you have every 
race, rich, poor, in between. I mean, this really is something special. Now look, <laughs> LA ironically has a very racist past, okay? You got the Chinese massacre in 1871. You got the Zoot Suit riots, the Watts riots, Rodney King uprising, LAPD history, for goodness sake. But the point is, look around now, and it's undeniable. But how did we get here? Why? Why is Los Angeles this bastion of diversity in the world? Now, of course, the first inhabitants of LA were the Native Americans, okay? They occupied the land for thousands of years, and they spoke a combined 135 different languages. This is a precursor for the Los Angeles of today, and I'm going to blow your mind with some stats later. But after the Native Americans, Spanish colonizers came in in the 18th century who were, for better or for worse, the first immigrants and first transplants. And by 1781, you had the Pobladores who founded what was called Pueblo de Nuestra Señora, La Reina de Los Angeles. And those Pobladores, <clears throat> what would become Los Angeles, were 44 original settlers and four soldiers from New Spain. By the way, New Spain, Mexico. But of those 44 original settlers, only two were white. Of the other 42, 26 had some degree of African ancestry and 16 were people of mixed Spanish and Native American blood. So from day one, literal day one in Los Angeles, you're already looking at this racial and ethnic background. I mean, it's nuts, right? So Mexico gained its independence from Spain in 1821, and it became what is now Los Angeles. It was part of a Mexican province. And the state of California, including what is now Los Angeles, including Los Angeles, remained a part of Mexico for about 27 years. But by this time, there were American settlers migrating to the area. And by 1848, the area formally became part of the United States. And this is when the diversity really starts kicking into a new gear. It's all because of the gold rush, right? Gold was discovered in Northern California, gold fever, and it dramatically changed the course of, of history. But this area, Los Angeles history, in specific, specifically, mass migration, abundant natural resources were fueling this California population boom. And who was coming in? It was Americans of European descent migrating by the thousands to search for gold. And now foreigners from other nations were joining the rush. Immigrants were traveling from Mexico, China, Australia, Ireland, Russia, Italy, England. And prior to 1848, there were still what was called Californios which were Mexicans born in the United States. And so these residents owned fertile farmland were some of the biggest landowners in what is now Los Angeles. And now they're going through to the gold rush, but there's not enough gold for everybody. And then there was a bust. And guess what? They're going to find this fertile farmland. They're going to see this land of abundance with resources. And that's Los Angeles. And by the turn of the 20th century, immigration to Los Angeles from Europe through these ports, San Pedro, Long, Long Beach, Venice. There were Irish, Italian, Greek, Croatian, Serbian, Polish, German, Portuguese, Armenian neighborhoods in Bunker Hill, in San Pedro, in Boyle Heights, in Lincoln Heights. I mean, Los Angeles was already 
by the turn of the 20th century, this true melting pot, this amalgamation of all these different ethnicities and races. And what about black people, right? Always a hot button issue in Los Angeles and the United States. 1900 census, the city had 2,100 black Americans. By 1920, this grew to 15,000. In 1910, Los Angeles had the highest percentage of black home ownership in the nation. 36% of the city's African-American residents own their own homes. W.E.B. Dubois, famous African-American leader, described Los Angeles in 1913 as a wonderful place because it was less subjected to racial discrimination due to the population being small and the ongoing tensions between white people and Mexicans. So think about this. This is kind of a redirect, right? Like not to say there isn't racism, but there is a harsher form of racism going on. It's kind of a subversive sort of terrible thing, but it allowed people to settle in and people are distracted. You know what I mean? So it was a different situation, different vibe. And the numbers kind of bear that out. So now it is a complicated relationship because racism is still present, right? And from the thirties to the fifties, these racial covenants continue to be enacted in new neighborhoods and existing neighborhoods, ensuring certain people, mostly blacks and Jews, couldn't own property in various areas. And the remnants of that are still visible today in certain neighborhoods. But, but, Los Angeles is the city of the future. It's the city that keeps reinventing itself. End of the 19th century, those first migrants were brought by agriculture, right? Oranges, dairy cattle, citrus, anything you could grow. Los Angeles was one of the first fruit and vegetable baskets in the United States. Then Edward Doheny came. Oil, oil industry, the black gold rush took over the area, brought in more migrants. Then what happens? Film. People all over the world, fame is a drug, wanted to chase it, film, and now you're getting everybody coming because they want to be a star. Then you have aerospace, the nuclear war industry, the services industry, tourism. All of that meant more jobs, more opportunity, and racist or not, employers needed employees. The only color I see is green. Some said, and it didn't matter where these employees were from. And once certain communities were becoming established, they invite more family and friends from back home. My favorite modern example of this is the Cambodian community. I've told you about it. The story of Ted Noy, the donut king and former Cambodian army general. He immigrated to greater LA after the war and he worked at a gas station across from a donut shop, saw the donut shop success, opened his own. And then guess what? He became a conduit for Cambodians to flourish in Los Angeles. And yes, there are more Cambodians in LA than anywhere in the world outside of Cambodia. And I mean, again, Los Angeles facilitates that. My wife's family, they're from Zacatecas. And her uncle opened a Mexican restaurant. And they now have six locations, all owned by different Tios. And in fact, it's called Tios because Los Angeles is the land of opportunity. This is where the American dream is most often realized. And people know it is once and forever the city of the future for everybody. All right. I want to give you some facts about the racial diversity in Los Angeles. This is a fun fact for me. 
As of the 2020 census, white people are the minority in Los Angeles. 41.3%. You can look this up on Wikipedia. You can look it up in the uh, census. Hispanic, 47.5%. Black or African-American, 9.8%. Native American, 0.5%. Asian, 10.7%. Hawaiian and Pacific Islander, 0.2%. Other, 25.2%. You wonder why that doesn't add up to 100%. It's what people self-identify as. But that is interesting. Hispanic or Latino self-identified, 47.5%. White, 41.3%. Interesting, right? Now, here's a good one. You ready for this fact? 220 languages are spoken in Los Angeles. Remember what I said earlier with the native inhabitants, the original indigenous folk spoke to 135 different languages. That was just foreshadowing for today. That's amazing. I can't even name 50 languages, much less 220. That's from people who represent 140 countries. That's pretty awesome. And get this one. Almost 44% of Los Angeles residents speak a language other than English at home. That's nuts. That's great. I mean, we speak Spanish at home, right? You know, my wife and son are Mexican. We want to raise them bilingual. The top languages spoken in California, Spanish, Vietnamese, Korean, Farsi, Cantonese, Russian, Tagalog, Arabic, Punjabi. That, That covers a lot of ground. So when we talk about diversity in Los Angeles, it's not lip service. This is real. It's one of the true reasons to celebrate Los Angeles. And now another true reason to celebrate Los Angeles. If you're going to do one thing in LA this week, do this. Go to Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale. Now, the cemetery itself is an oddly great place to visit. There's museum, churches, artwork. You can have, there's these hills where you get Incredible views of the city. But specifically, you're going to go to what's called the Hall of Crucifixion. It's the largest religious painting ever painted. And now look, you're saying to yourself, I'm not religious. I didn't know he was religious. I'm not. I'm 0% religious. But this thing is breathtaking. And it's not just because of how amazing the work is, which it is. But stick around for this story. But let me tell you about this painting first. It's called the Crucifixion. And this was the culmination of a six-year project by a Polish artist named Jan Stika, which he began in 1894 after traveling to Jerusalem, and he finished it in Poland. Now, again, I'm not a religious person, but at 195 feet long and 45 feet tall, woo! That is some, let's say, divine intervention. No, but seriously, it is a panorama in its own right. This is like 180 degrees worth of painting. And what it depicts is a moment just before Jesus was crucified. It's got great detail. I mean, we're talking six years of work by a master painter. And it's housed beautifully. This is in its own hall. Again, it's called the Hall of Crucifixion because the painting's called the Crucifixion, which is a 900-seat auditorium. It also has like this little like in-house museum thing, which like includes some of the paint, the brushes and stuff used by the artist. And it's a testament to Jan Stika who created this thing. But let me tell you this story because this is 
incredible. How did this painting anyway that started in Jerusalem was completed in Poland? Why, why is it in Glendale? Why is this in some museum? Well, here, listen to this. So Stika, the artist, he was close friends with, and my pronunciation is terrible here, but I think it's Ignace Paderewski, Padaszewski, who was the prime minister of Poland at the end of the uh, 19th century, end of the 1800s. And one day the prime minister told him that he had an interesting dream about Christ's execution. He told him all about this dream and Stika felt inspired. He offered to paint this largest religious painting in the world, the crucifixion. And he took it seriously. This is a master artist. You know what I mean? He was close friends with the prime minister. He's not, he's not hanging out with some schmuck, right? So Stika traveled to Jerusalem to prepare the sketches. He wanted to feel it like an artist, method painting, if you will. And then after he was inspired on the spot, he went to Rome to ask for Pope Leo XIII's blessing on his palette and on his sketches. I mean, again, this is what a master artist Stika was at the time. He, he got an audience with the Pope to ask for his blessing. So Pope gave him his blessing. He went to work. Six years later, six grueling years, painting was finished. But one pretty big problem arose. <laughs> How do you display such a huge painting? Well, he wasn't able to show it for another two years. Only once in 1902 was he able to find a exhibit hall large enough to show the crucifixion. And it was in Russia, 1902. That was the only time he got to show it. But in 1904, a new opportunity arose. Stika received an invitation to display the painting at the St. Louis World's Fair. Now, go back and look. The World's Fairs are very significant in the 19th and early 20th century. The Space Needle, the Eiffel Tower, the first Ferris wheel, cherry Coke, ice cream... All these were introduced at a world fair. And I mean, it is your country's way. There, there's no internet. You're introducing your product, your invention to the world. So he was invited to unveil this painting, the world's largest painting at the world's fair. So he jumped at it, eager to show off this magnificent piece of art, figuring that a rapidly developing country like the United States would be a perfect place to show off not just this, but all of his artworks he wrapped the crucifixion around a telephone pole because how else are you going to transport something that's 45 feet tall and 195 feet long and take care of it? It's pretty ingenious when you think about it. He loaded the crucifixion and all of his other works on the boat to exhibit at the World's Fair. He was about to become a bona fide world superstar, master artist remembered forever at this World's Fair. But here's where this story takes a very, very tragic turn. While the organizers of the World Fair assured him that the exhibit halls were indeed large enough to accommodate his painting, turns out they miscalculated. The rooms were not big enough. Couldn't even get it through the door. So the boat lands on the coast of New York, his boat from Europe, and he had to deposit the crucifixion into a warehouse in New York. But he was an artist and he was already there. He went on to St. Louis, figuring at least the audiences would enjoy seeing his other paintings, which they did. They were brilliant. 
gifted painter already renowned throughout Europe. So it's great. At least, you know, nice consolation prize. But the but the big dog was never shown off, right? The crucifixion's just chilling back in New York. But uh, on the last day of the St. Louis World Fair in 1904, the last day of the exhibition, there was a fire. And that fire happened to be in the building where his other works were displayed. All of them. They were all engulfed in flames and destroyed. Can you imagine that? Your entire life's work gone in a foreign country where you didn't even get to show off your masterpiece? But, but, at least he still had the crucifixion. I mean, fighting back tears beyond that, I'm sure. So, dejected but not fully defeated, Stika went back to New York to retrieve the crucifixion. And he tried to take it back to Poland, but he couldn't afford to pay the customs fees. I mean, I could imagine even now shipping a telephone pole. Come on, that's a big, it's a big freight right there. And who knows in that era? So the American government seized his painting. No, Jan Stika, you famous artist, you're not allowed to ship it back across the Atlantic. We're going to keep it right here until you can pay the fee for it. So he stuck around, repeated attempts to retrieve his work, but he ended up going home empty-handed and heartbroken without ever seeing his painting again. He died in 1925. And no one else would ever see it again till 1944 when Dr. Hubert Eaton, the founder of Forest Lawn Cemetery, heard this tragic story heard about the existence of the world's largest painting the crucifixion and intrigued by the story Eaton began a lengthy search in an attempt to recover it but he couldn't find it the crucifixion this 195 foot by 45 foot piece of art wrapped around a telephone pole it wasn't easy to find it was now 1944 40 years since that original pilgrimage and the painting had changed hands numerous times. Chased it down, called sources, people who know people. And eventually, he managed to locate it. It was somehow in the basement of the Chicago Civic Opera Company. It was mistakenly listed as an abandoned piece of old decor. And he found it. So Hubert Eaton purchased the painting, but he still, there's not, still not an exhibit hall. Where are you going to show it? You're going to just have it out in the open air? Come on. This is a masterwork of art. So Hubert Eaton took this hill and this is where you're going. It is a beautiful hill. This forest lawn cemetery is really a gorgeous place. You know, I feel kind of weird saying that about cemetery. I guess in South, they have these gorgeous cemeteries, but it's a beautiful cemetery. And there's this hill and Hubert Eaton said, I'm going to build a permanent display the Hall of Crucifixion with 900 seats. Beautiful lighting, beautiful structure so people can see and admire this thing. And the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale, California. And that's where it's displayed today. And one final positive twist of events. In 1959, Hubert Eaton arranged with Stika's family for the painter's remains to be brought to the United States for interment in the Hall of Immortals at Forest Lawn. 
So Stika may have never seen his painting displayed after Russia in 1902, but at least his presence is on site with this awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping piece of work. And you can see them both when you go to the Hall of Crucifixion this week. And that is one heck of a story and one awesome thing to do in L.A. So that is our show. Thank you for listening. Another episode of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. Man, this one was fun. I'm exhausted, but I hope you're exhilarated. Don't forget that five-star rating. If you have 10 seconds, leave a review. I love it. It's great. Los Angeles, baby. Helps so much, and it's highly appreciated. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.